The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So good evening, everybody. Glad to see you here. So the last couple of weeks, uh, we started out talking about racial moments, moments when race comes into your awareness, and looking at ourselves, our attachments, the places where we get polarized, um, the scripts that we get into, cultural scripts that we're under the influence of. Last week, we talked some about privilege and about the white racial frame. And tonight, I would like to pick up on privilege a little bit. I would also like to spend a bit of time on talking about resentment. And the first week, I promised you that I would say a few words sometime about what the research shows about how to overcome implicit bias, which we all have. So I'm hoping to talk about those things tonight. And I'm also hoping that we will have some time, like last week, where you will have an opportunity to practice speaking and listening and noticing uh, in a small group. So that's where we're headed. I mentioned the first week uh, a book that I um, was finding useful. Now I can't remember it. I think it's The Way of Tenderness uh, by Zenju Earthland Manual. And this is a quote from that book. Dogen Zenji, founder of the Soto, tra- Soto Zen tradition, said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. In order to forget the self, we must study it. We must look at the identities that the self is emotionally attached to. This is a lifelong practice because identity is ever-evolving. Might our woundedness be transformed from a persistent soreness into liberated tenderness? And you know, then she goes on in her book to talk about this way of tenderness. And I thought I would start with a couple of stories that relate to privilege and to tenderness. So the first one happened last year, and I was at the Rainbow grocery store. Um, I had just been to my co-op, which is actually where I do most of my shopping. And then I sometimes occasionally go to Rainbow and I stock up on things like toilet paper and Kleenex and do like a big, big, you know, spend $75 on those things. So I was standing in line um, and I was behind a woman who was checking out. And as she was checking out, Uh, she started to realize she wasn't going to have enough money to pay for everything, and she started putting back, you know, like two loaves of bread and a couple of yogurts, and she was kind of uh, talking, you know, I I need a couple of yogurts, and, you know, sort of talking to herself about what she thought she could do without. And um, as I was noticing this, I kind of impulsively just offered, I said, you know, I, I'd be happy to pay for those things. And, you know, it was probably like 5 or $10. It wasn't a lot of money. And uh, so I said, I, I would be happy to pay that. And she said, oh, no, 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 thank you, thank you. No, that's, that's okay. And um, I didn't know, like, here's this not knowing what's the right thing to do. I didn't know, well, should I 
you know, say something. Should I kind of insist and see if she'll accept if I offer again? And I didn't know if I should, but I did offer again. And no, 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 uh, no, no thanks. And, um, and then she and started talking to the clerk about, you know, how wonderful I was and how generous and what a nice person. And, you know, like they're both going on and on about, um, how wonderful I was. Um, and, but she wouldn't accept my, my money. Um, it just so happened that both the woman, the shopper and the clerk were both African American women. Um, and, you know, what ended up happening, then we, we chatted some more and, um, uh, I learned a little bit mo- more about the woman who was the shopper. But the reason I'm telling this story <laughs> is because this was actually a really awkward and uncomfortable situation for me. Um, I, I wanted to be helpful. I wanted to, um, you know, I felt like uh, partly my privilege, like here I've been shopping at the other store. I'm not even buying my groceries here. just been buying my organic produce. And um, she's not able to afford really the basic uh, kinds of groceries that she needed for the week. And I'm reminded, like... Um, it's easy for me, anyway, standing in line to start to critique the groceries other people are buying, you know, to think like whether those are good groceries to be spending your money on or not. There's that judging mind that comes in. So um, I can say I wasn't judging her groceries because I thought they were healthy groceries. But the point is, this is the judging mind that can find anything to uh, pick up on. So um, there wasn't a way to resolve our, our differences here. Like, um, you know, I ended up feeling really weird because I felt like I'm the privileged one and, I, and they're acting like I'm really the hero and I haven't even done anything um, and, uh, and I'm aware of my privilege, so it makes me really uncomfortable. The second story goes back to probably about 6th or 7th grade. And some of you may have had this experience in gym class where there's a process of picking teams. And this happens over and over again sometimes in gym class. And so I had experienced um, this process of picking teams and there were patterns about how this went. So the same girls tended to be picked first and early and then it was very predictable who would be the girls who were picked last. And uh, this was uncomfortable and awkward for me just to even witness this. Like I felt bad for the girls who were picked last. I wasn't one of the ones picked first, but I was never one of the ones who was picked last. So one day I got to be the captain. And um, right away I picked one of the girls was usually picked last. And then after that, I uh, thought that was really not a smart thing to do. Because what ended up happening is now she was very visible, like visible, like what's Terry doing picking, you know, this person who's no good at it and always gets picked last, what's Terry doing? And I felt like in a way I had exposed something and made it even more, uh, you know, kind of awkward for her out of my good intentions. And um, again, I want to make the point that 
it's hard to, uh, or maybe impossible, we cannot totally address these systemic issues of privilege and oppression on the interpersonal level. We can't undo that whole system in an interaction. And so when we um, try to decide what to do, um, it, it's you know likely that we'll do something that's unskillful or that doesn't go as well as we'd hoped. And um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do anything. So um, I think the thing is, can we make a space uh, for ourselves to be imperfect, but making an effort to put our values into practice, to live, to live our practice, um, even though it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable and things won't go so well all the time. Um, and can we, in our relationships, make a big enough space so that we can, with the people we're getting to know, the people in our lives, that we can talk about these Issues We can talk about where separation based on stratification is coming up and uh, coming up for one or the other or both of us and getting in the way. Can we, can we make that kind of a space? Because we can't get rid of it just single-handedly. I received a couple of questions about um, requests, things to talk about. And one person wrote me and said, um, I feel so uncomfortable and awkward, um, you know, as a privileged person um, with multiple privileges in terms of categories of difference. I, I feel really, what, what, I don't know what to say when I'm with someone who doesn't have privilege. And this is a, um, the kind of awkward situation that um, maybe many of us have experienced in certain moments. So uh, I think this is part of our practice, you know, to sit with the reality, the truth of what we experience and um, not give up on ourselves and just shut down and go away, um, but to learn from what it is that we're experiencing we can't actually just get rid of our privilege. So you, you, can't, you can't say, well, I don't want that privilege, uh, I'll get rid of it, because it's socially constructed, because it's given to you uh, by social systems that people have been socialized into and participate in. So um, you maybe can use your privilege uh, in some ways based on your values to try and create the kind of community that you would like to be a part of. And by community, I mean this community and larger communities. So, uh, for example, if you, have, um, if you have resources, material resources, or if you have education and you have uh, access to knowledge and abilities in that realm, you, you can try to use what you have to create a better world. And, you know, then the question is how to do that. One of the things I wanted to mention, I don't know if you're aware that here in Minnesota there's a racial equity scorecard at the legislature. And I forgot to look up the name of the organization. Um, does anybody know? No, it's not. That wasn't what I was thinking of. 
I will have to, um, I'm going to give a couple of documents to Shelly to put up, and I'll, I'll have to put this link in there. But if you, if you Google racial equity scorecard Minnesota legislature, I, I think you could find it. And so <clears throat> there, there are people now who are assessing what's going on in our state and how does uh, it measure up in terms of racial equity and how do our legislators, particular ones, measure up. So this is something we could pay attention to. Uh, this is a way to um, use our, our resources that we have uh, in terms of knowledge and ability to um, to learn more on that bigger system level, um, as well as the ongoing practice of noticing what goes on in our own hearts and minds and relationships. So Alan G. Johnson, who I mentioned last week, he's the guy who wrote Privilege, Power, Difference, and I was talking from that book. And uh, for somebody who wanted to know, it's A-L-L-A-N, Alan G. And in his book, he uses the analogy of the monopoly game um, in talking about uh, systems. And he says, when you play monopoly, like there's rules, and it doesn't matter if you are, uh, you know, a person who uh, is a good person or a person who is a friendly person. Like when you're playing the game, you get into a role, and the role is to buy property and eventually to win and, uh, you know, get all the money so no one else has any. So he, what he talked about is he noticed that he, when he was playing this game with his kids, he behaved in ways that he didn't feel so good about. Like, you know, they'd lose, they'd, uh, you know, land on a property and not have money to buy it, and he'd, he'd go, oh, sweetie, that's too bad. And then inside he'd be going, yes! You know, now, the, now I'm more likely to win. So the system shaped the self that was emerging. And so that context brought forward certain kinds of qualities and characteristics. And so he talks about a system of privilege and oppression, how it does this. It creates patterns and pathways, and it's easy to go along, and it's challenging to take uh, the path of greater resistance. And Judy talked about this last week when she said, you know, even just mentioning coming here, I, I feel uncomfortable and worried about what some of my white friends are going to think or say. So mostly when it comes to systems of privilege, if you have privilege, you're enticed into the path of least resistance, the pattern that goes with your socialization into the privilege category. And so um, one of the things we can do is just notice those little places where it feels like, Oh, I'd be breaking the rules. Oh, it's uncomfortable. Oh, someone might be upset if I said or did this. And that's the path of greater resistance. So to start to notice where that is and then to notice what happens for you inside around it. Because just because you notice it doesn't mean you will take a different path. Uh, I think that might be an aspiration. Can you uh, disrupt the pattern? But um, initially, you might not feel up to that. And so then you notice what goes on inside and what are you afraid of. 
and what's at stake for you and how do you talk to yourself about that and what's going on in your body. You just notice all of that when you run into one of those moments. And um, Johnson encourages us to uh, take small risks, to disrupt, uh, to be willing to make people uncomfortable, including starting with ourselves, um, as, as a way to start to disrupt systems of privilege and oppression. Uh, he also says, find little ways to withdraw support from paths of least resistance and people's choices to follow them. So we're talking little ways, starting, starting small with what you notice in your own life. Um, and part of what's powerful about this, because there's this path of least resistance, which we're socialized to follow, uh, when one person disrupts things, it, it actually uh, is a really good thing because other people witness that. And then it can uh, offer them courage to be someone who can also disrupt the path of least resistance. So in Monopoly, I remember when my kids were little and we used to play regularly with this friend of mine. And um, so if, if somebody was losing, she'd say, hey, I've got some money, would you like to borrow some, or I could give you some, and she would, you know, disrupt. And it was really fun to play by, by different rules. Um, so that would be your challenge, to think where are those different rules in your own life. So when you pay attention to race, this is disrupting this path of least resistance if you're a white person who has the privilege to not pay attention. So your paying attention is a beginning, it's a start. And then the question is, how will you translate this paying attention into some kind of meaningful action in the world so that you are uh, contributing to more equity and justice? So there isn't a simple answer about how to do that, but I think uh, that part of your sitting practice uh, gives you a place to, whenever you do that, however you decide to do that, you have a better chance of being less reactive, better opportunity to be uh, more skillful, although you might be like me and have situations where you're not so skillful. Um, and then you could learn from that. You could learn uh, from your own experience. There's an article online that is about um, talking to people about privilege, people who maybe haven't thought about it. And uh, you might be wondering, well, how would I talk about some of this with someone who doesn't know about privilege? One of the things that's recommended is that um, you... Uh, just lost my thought.
that you talk, first of all, about, because we all have these multiple identities, some of them linked to privilege, others of them not linked to privilege. For most of us, we have that combination. The suggestion was that you give the person an opportunity to actually express some of their feelings about ways that they aren't privileged, the categories where, where they, they, they don't feel they have privilege. Um, and so if, if someone is heard related to that, then they, and they have empathy and some support, they might have more room to be open to looking at places where they have privilege. So that was one suggestion. A second one is to um, talk about this way that privilege is fluid and shifting. One of the stories that um, I heard from a student, he talked about, this is a, a young white man. I don't think I told you this story, but I've used it a few times. Have I told you about the young white man in his shoes? So there was a young, uh, this was a student of mine who, when he told this story, he was in his 30s. But as a, as a young boy growing up in Tennessee, he was um, one of the few white kids in his school, and he was from a poor family. And um, he went to school, and kids at school had these really fancy shoes um, I know when my kids were younger, they wanted the, my son Jordan wanted the Michael Jordan shoes, and they're very pricey. And um, so this kid wanted these nice shoes like other kids had at school. And he went home, and he asked his grandmother, who he lived with, if she would buy him these shoes. And she said, I can't afford those shoes. And he begged, and he begged, and he begged, and eventually his grandmother bought the shoes. So he went to school wearing his new shoes, really happy and proud about his new shoes. And what do you suppose happened? He didn't get in a fight, but he was told, you can't wear those shoes. Who do you think you are to wear those shoes? He got picked on a lot. And um, he went home from school, and he took off the shoes, and put them in the back of the closet and never wore the shoes again. And his grandmother noticed he wasn't wearing the shoes, and she starts getting really angry. I spent all that money on those shoes, and why aren't you wearing them? And at first he won't tell her. He won't talk about it. And eventually he tells her, I can't wear those shoes because I get picked on, and I can't wear them. So um, in, in, in his mind, you know, he's thinking, how, how I hear that I'm privileged as a white male, but how, how could it be that I'm privileged? I, I certainly didn't feel privileged then. And I think that although there are systems of privilege and oppression on a big scale, like we talked about last week, on the local scale, it isn't always the same. And so in that moment, I, I don't think he was privileged. I, I don't think uh, he was in a privileged setting. I, I think he was targeted and uh, felt the woundedness and the hurt of having been targeted. Now, 
course, as a 30-year-old something, and he's living in Wisconsin, and it's a different setting, a different situation. But for him, I think it helped him to accept some of the privilege he currently has to have some empathy for that moment, uh, that situation when he was young where, um, at least in that story, he didn't have privilege, and his experience was that he didn't have privilege in that uh, school setting. So to talk about this relative or fluid and shifting nature of privilege, uh, I think uh, can help some people to receive the information more. It's also helpful to distinguish between having privilege and feeling guilty. People might feel guilty, um, and you can't necessarily make someone not feel guilty if they do. So that's our own work if we feel guilty. But uh, I don't think it's so helpful. I think guilt uh, tends to shut down uh, paying attention and shut down action. So to the extent that uh, it's possible to work with guilt and set it aside, uh, I think that that's, that's useful. And then it's also helpful to, I think, talk about this as systems. Um, privilege is not particularly about individuals, although the paradox is individuals receive privilege, but to talk about the systems. And so when you're talking about privilege, you aren't talking about someone's character. Uh, you might be talking about their behaviors, uh, but you're also talking about a system that um, all of us in some way have been socialized into this system of privilege and oppression. So um, those are some suggestions that I hope might help you as you enter into having conversation with people who uh, maybe haven't thought about this topic, um, who you'd like to practice sharing some with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would say privilege is when you receive advantages and benefits based on the group that you're in, not on something that you've done or haven't done. And other people don't receive those advantages and benefits based on the group they're in, not because of something they've done or haven't done. That's that's the definition that I would work with. And like I mentioned last time, there's There's some complexities to looking at privilege and how we define it. But um, with the students I'm working with who don't know about privilege, that's where I start from. It gets tricky because um, there are a number of white people. I don't know how many, but it's not uncommon to hear a white person say, uh, well, now really it's white people who are discriminated against. Uh, people of color are are the ones who have the privilege. And um, and it's also fairly common to hear white people say, uh, people of color are creating the problem. When they bring up race, they keep the problem alive. So, you know, I, I'm not saying these are easy things to hear or to respond to, um, but the more you talk about race, you will hear, you'll hear the patterns like, uh, these are not original thoughts. These are thoughts that come out of our context, and there's there's a, a limited number of common things that you'll hear people say. 
And the, these are the scripts, that some of the scripts that uh, I gave you the handout about. Um, so if you're not shocked, if you're not appalled, you have a better chance to respond skillfully or to anticipate somebody might say that. What would I say in response? Uh, I could think about that, and then I would be more prepared. So, so your practice actually helps you see what the patterns are, and um, and when you see when you know what the patterns are, I mean, I have to admit, I do still get outraged. I get reactive about things I hear, um, and I have to work with myself because, um, you know, if I if I respond to a student out of my own reactivity. I'm not going to be helpful to their learning process. So uh, I sometimes have to, like, breathe and sit before I type my response. Um, but this is what I'm working with, is to try to be less reactive so I can respond more skillfully. And I do see why people think that way. I mean, I understand um, the socialization that contributes to those patterns. So uh, it isn't just, you know, an individual bad person. There's a system that's contributing. So um, I would like to say just a little bit about resentment. Um, I think this links to privilege. So I think that comment about, you know, thinking white people are lacking in privilege or disadvantaged may come out of some resentment, uh, also some misunderstanding, I think. Um, but resentment, when we uh, experience resentment, it, it's really like what I would say about most of the practices of paying attention, that you notice when it happens, what's happening how am I experiencing it in my body? What are the thoughts that go with that? Uh, what are the stories I'm telling? Um, and resentment is said to be closely related to two other emotions, hatred and contempt. And um, this is one of the suggestions is that we tend to feel contempt when we feel wronged by somebody that we view as inferior to us. Anger, when we feel wronged by someone we view as equal. And resentment, if the perceived harm is due to the actions of someone we consider superior or who's in a position that we would consider privileged. So um, I think, you know, to discern in yourself What's anger? What's resentment? What's contempt? To take that apart, uh, I think that uh, the paying attention, the noticing, the sitting with, the learning about uh, is a useful practice. There's actually, I, I went um, to do a little looking about this, and I found a very helpful post online. It's at a site called wildmind.org, and I got to it by typing in Resentment and Buddhism, and this came up, and this author gives 12 different um, Buddhist practices for working with resentment. And um, one of the, the things that's at the beginning of the, the blog post, 
um, is, is this statement. It says, uh, Anne Lamott in her novel Crooked Little Heart says that holding on to resentment is like eating rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. So, you know, here's, here's our work. Uh, this is our work. Um, I also have a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, and he's speaking in terms of anger, but I think it's applicable to resentment as well. When we are angry, we are not usually inclined to return to ourselves. We want to think about the person who is making us angry, to think about his hateful aspects, his rudeness, dishonesty, cruelty, maliciousness, and so on. And we could add obliviousness, lack of awareness about race and privilege. We could add to that list. The more we think about him, listen to him, or look at him, the more our anger flares. His dishonesty and hatefulness may be real, imaginary, or exaggerated. But in fact, the root of the problem is the anger itself. And we have to come back and look first of all inside ourselves. It is best if we do not listen to or look at the person whom we consider to be the cause of our anger. Like a fireman, we have to pour water on the blaze first and not waste time looking for the one who set the house on fire. So I don't think that means don't look at all, but I think if what you're under the influence of is anger or resentment or contempt, that maybe the work of that moment or the practice of that moment is to uh, sit sit with it. Um, but I, I certainly think we need to be looking at privilege and oppression, um, and we're more able to do that when we're less reactive. Um, that blog also includes um, things like um, loving-kindness meditation. And so if you're interested, you, you can read more for more specific suggestions. Wildmind.org. And, and I didn't even take time to um, look and see who was writing it and what else is on the site. Uh, so... All I know is that one post. I have too many papers here tonight. Um, Here's the one I want. I just want to say a couple words about the research on how to work with implicit bias. So this is the unconscious bias that we've all been socialized into. So one thing is called stereotype replacement. When you notice yourself having a stereotype, uh, that's important, just that level of awareness, noticing. And once you notice and you label, then you can reflect. Is this, is this true based on my experience, or am I generalizing? Uh, so just catching it like that, research says, makes a difference uh, with our bias. Individuation, which means rather than thinking about a group of people, when you get to know individual people, uh, this helps to break down bias about a group. Um, if you can't have direct contact 
with people in other groups. Let's say um, you're in, in a limited circle and you don't know how you don't know how to have uh, contact with some of the people who you might like to and um, be able to connect across differences. It also helps to just um, do it vicariously, so reading books, movies, um, even hearing about your friends who have contact with someone from a different group. Those things will help us uh, to challenge our implicit bias. The thing about the friends, I should modify that. It's actually hearing about or witnessing positive interactions. So if you have people who are telling you negative things about people in other groups, that won't do it. It has to be positive uh, things you hear or witness. Um, it's also helpful to do what's called counter-stereotypic imaging. So if you think about um, African Americans who are respected in the culture, who are recognized um, as making contributions, um, and particularly if you pair that with, say, thinking about white people who have done really bad, awful things like, say, Jeffrey Dahmer, um, or the the guy who um, did the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, if you pair these um, ideas, what happens is it breaks up the typical stereotypes in the culture, which might be uh, dominantly negative about African Americans, and if you're white, positive about white people. In fact, not seeing white people as a group, but seeing only individuals. So you could make it a point with particular groups to look at positive images uh, if you wanted to challenge negative stereotypes. It's called counter-stereotypic imaging, counter to the stereotypes um, that are dominant. Uh, it also helps if you doubt your own ob objectivity. So um, <clears throat> one of the things, there's research that shows that if you have even one person of color on a jury, as opposed to an all-white jury, there's actually a beneficial impact because uh, it, it makes the white people less confident about how right they are about their viewpoint. And so they doubt that doubt is actually a good thing because it makes room to consider other things than your own automatic uh, thought about what's good or right. And so slowing down in general is considered to be helpful. Your implicit bias comes with your initial split-second kind of reaction. Even a couple-second pause will give you access to more of your thinking mind capacity, your conscious values, and you'll be able to think more clearly. So if things are getting uh, heated, in a conversation, particularly in a group, I would recommend pausing, slowing down, um, giving yourself uh, the opportunity to have a better quality conversation uh, by taking a little bit of time. So those are some of the suggestions about both implicit bias, reducing implicit bias, and uh, more generally what 
they call breaking the prejudice habit, which goes beyond implicit bias and includes some other uh, factors that they study. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.